From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. You give us an hour, and we give you a better understanding of what is happening in the world from a Christian worldview. Couple reminders for you. Make sure that you download the Stand Firm app wherever you get your apps. Type in Stand Firm. You can get all the FRC content as well as Washington Watch directly to your phone. In addition, if you'd like to receive text updates about what's happening in the world, what's happening in Congress, what you can do about it, text the word STAND to 67742. That's text the word STAND to 67742 to sign up for text alerts. Today on the program, a great lineup for you. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, they have announced, they've released their latest guide to language and abortion. What words have fallen out of favor and what words are they recommending as substitutes? We'll talk about that today. In addition, A group of churches in Columbus, Ohio, have come together to start a school in one of Ohio's neediest communities. Is this story of the church reclaiming education for their children in their community a model that other churches around the country can follow? We'll talk about it. In addition, at the end of the program, we'll have an update on where things stand with COVID. Is it over or is it not? But first, the headlines today. Leaders from three EU countries, the Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovenia, traveled to Kiev today to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a show of support for independent Ukraine. But this meeting takes place under the backdrop of a besieged capital as Russian forces continue their fierce missile assault on the city. And I'm joined now by CBN News Senior International Correspondent, George Thomas, who's on the ground in Ukraine for an update on the latest news. George, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Joseph, thank you so much for having uh, me on the broadcast. Uh, Great to be with you. Well, we are grateful for your time. Your perspective is so valuable to all of us who care and are praying uh, for the people in Ukraine and praying for a quick resolution to this. Are there any recent developments that you think signal which direction this conflict is heading? Well, I mean, I think you have seen in the last 24 to 48 hours a dramatic escalation, especially as Russian forces hone in their targets on Kyiv. Yesterday, uh, actually this morning uh, at 4.10 a.m., I was awoken to three huge explosions. Uh, I'm living right on the west side of Kyiv, probably about 10 kilometers from downtown Kyiv, and the explosions were huge. Uh, it shook uh, the building that I was in. And then this morning, you're looking at the video here. One of those missiles uh, exploded right uh, on this uh, multi-story residential uh, complex. Uh, the, the reporting is that the Ukrainians managed to intercept this particular uh, missile. And uh, the result was that the uh, Russian uh, rocket missile uh, fell and exploded right here. And you see the complete destruction uh, of this uh, of this uh, multi-story building. I think what you're seeing is, uh, or oh, incidentally, Joseph, I should say, 
that the mayor of Kyiv has uh, uh, imposed uh, a curfew, which uh, started at 8 p.m. local time and runs till Thursday at 7 a.m. And he said uh, that uh, we are expecting in the next few hours uh, a, a really dangerous period here in Kyiv. And so in the Kyiv Oblast, which is basically another word for province, nobody is allowed to leave their homes or apartments uh, unless the air sirens go off and you have to go and find shelter in an underground bunker. But basically, it's locked down till Thursday morning at 7 o'clock. But what we have seen in the last 24, 48 hours is, is an escalation on the part of, uh, of the Russian forces. And, I, and I'll give you a picture. My sense is that, A, there is frustration uh, in the Kremlin that the, the sort of military operation hasn't gone according to plan. Uh, the idea was that they would take Kiev, the capital city, within a 24 to 48 hours. That hasn't happened. Uh, and they are, in some cases, uh, bogged down, both on the western side as well as the eastern side of Kiev. However, at the same time, you know, I think the world's attention is obviously focused on Kiev. When is and if would, would Kiev uh, be completely taken over uh, by, by the Russians? I will caution your viewers to say, listen, the Russians are making some significant military uh, advances, both in the south as well as in the northeastern parts of the country. Today, in, for example, in the, in the strategic uh, port city of Mariupol, uh, close to about 400 people are, in essence, being held hostage by the Russians at the Mariupol uh, hospital. That city has been pummeled uh, in the last week. It reminds me of the scenes from Grozny, Chechnya, during Russia's uh, horrific campaign, military campaign there. Uh, we're also seeing, uh, you know, the advances in the Donetsk and the Luhansk regions in the eastern part of the country, as well as in, in, uh, in Kharkiv, uh, and then obviously down in the south in Kherson. And there is some reporting that Russian battleships are steaming toward the, um, the strategic port of Odessa. And why is that important? Because 65 to 70 percent of the imports that come into Ukraine come in through the Black Sea. And 65% of that comes in through the port city of Odessa. And so if, if uh, Odessa were to fall in the hands of the Russians, that would be a significant blow uh, to, to Ukraine. George, the escalation you described that you're seeing there in Kyiv, do you think that's a reflection of persistence by the Russians or is it desperation? Well, I mean, I think I think in the West, the narrative obviously would be to say that this is a sign of desperation. Uh, but uh, look, this is a long slog. I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is a long slog. And the Russians, just based on their history, are willing to take that long slog. Uh, you see it in Georgia. Uh, in their invasion in 2008. You saw it in Syria. Uh, you saw it in uh, 2014 uh, when they took a good chunk of the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, what we are seeing today 
is because they are struggling from from an on-the-ground advancement, right? So, for example, the last couple of weeks, they've been basically stuck in the northern part of, uh, of, of Kiev, right? So they've not made really that dramatic of an advancement toward the capital city. Uh, so instead, what are they doing? They're, they're resorting to, to airstrikes, right? And so the, 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 the attacks, for example, this morning, they went after, a, like you saw in the video, they went after a residential high-rise building. They went after an underground uh, subway uh, system. In both of these situations, there's no military targets. Right. So what they've been doing is going after civilian targets. And Joseph, what they do by doing that is you are, in essence, instilling fear in the populace. Right. You're 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 sowing seeds of fear uh, that when you see these dramatic images, for example, last week, the horrific attack on Mariupol's maternity hospital. Uh, right. You, you're, you're going after civilian targets. The calculus on the Russian part is that these these attacks on civilians will at some point force the Zelensky government to the table, right? So the idea is that in warfare, you escalate in order to de-escalate. And obviously now there's talks, the U.S. intelligence and the U.K. intelligence uh, talk about a potential chemical or biological attack against that. If, if that were to happen, I would not be surprised. Why? Because, again, this is the Russian MO. They did that in, in Syria, uh, and there was no red line. Nobody, nobody uh, uh, brought consequences against uh, the Kremlin regime. And so, uh, absolutely, could the Russians deploy chemical or biological weapons? Absolutely. That, that's not far-fetched uh, at all. So uh, there is a combination of a little bit of frustration, because they've not made the kind of military moves that they would have uh, wanted to in the first opening days, opening salvos of the, of the war. Uh, but this is a long slot, because, look, You've got three options. One, Putin capitulates and says, I give up and I'm withdrawing my troops. Number two, that the Zelensky government capitulates and gives in to the Russian demands. Or number three, uh, there is a, uh, or number three, you have a full scale on uh, uh, operation where the entire Russian air force is engaged and they bring in more troops. Those are the three options. And my sense, my sense is that Russia is not going to capitulate. And George, to that point, and you note the Russian strategy of essentially trying to demoralize the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian people. What's your sense of the mood on the ground? What's the attitude of the Ukrainian people who remain? Uh, Fierce. Uh, They are absolutely fierce because this is at the end of the day, Joseph, uh, a fight for their freedom for their land. Today, I spoke to a number of humanitarian volunteers who are, in essence, sandwiched on one end to the, uh, to the uh, west. Uh, they are five miles away from Russian forces, and to the east is Kiev, and they're smack dab in the middle. And, and I said to these volunteers, why are you here? You are less than five miles from the Russians. And this lady said with such a fierce determination, This is my land. This is my soil. This is my country. I am willing to die for this country. Keep in mind, Joseph, you know, this is a nation that uh, lived through the Soviet Union and the tyranny of the Soviet Union. They gained independence 30 years ago and in the last eight, 10 years have really experienced uh, a flourishing of democracy. It's a young democracy, but it has flourished. Uh, they don't want to go back. They don't want to go back to the the Soviet mentality of the USSR. When you have lived through that, why do you want to go back to that? 
You make a fair point. And, and if this is going to be a battle of wills, and it appears that it is, and that's generally what war is, the early indications are that both sides of this conflict are very resolved, which could be the ingredients for a long, drawn-out, protracted, painful conflict. But yeah. we also know the headlines this week, the prime ministers of Poland, Slovenia, and Czech Republic are somewhat surprisingly going into a war zone to meet with Zelensky there in Kiev. What's the significance of this meeting? What do you expect to come of it? Yeah, uh, let me just backtrack and say uh, uh, and uh, give you a different point of view in terms of the, the slog uh, on the Russian part. The Russians don't they don't have a necessarily fight in this in terms of the army. We have seen reports after reports of of, of Russian uh, uh, soldiers basically quitting, being absolutely frustrated that they are you know involved in this in this entire war against their fellow brothers and sisters here in Ukraine. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, they have a fight in the uh, in this. They have a dog in the fight, so they are a little bit more, in my opinion, they they have a lot more at stake uh, in terms of these. George, leaders, sixty seconds. Sixty seconds. Want to hear your answer? Sure. Yeah, it's a show of it's a show of support in essence, right? It's a show of support, and again, these are Baltic countries that are also very concerned about uh, Russia's uh, creeping uh, uh, initiative uh, and uh, attempts to creep closer to their borders. So clearly, this was a sign of uh, of support for the Zelensky government. Well, we are encouraged by that, and and it's there's so much more to talk about. We are sadly out of time in terms of the the support that the rest of the world is giving to Ukraine. Is the world going to unify around that? What does that mean moving forward? George, we're going to have to have you back, but we thank you for your time and Godspeed to you and God's protection on you there. What you're doing is so important, but we do hope that you will be safe and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. While we continue to watch the war in Ukraine, the war on words is escalating at home, especially when it comes to the issue of abortion. What words are acceptable, according to the abortion industry? What words no longer are? You may be surprised, and we'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God. And he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, 
and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Fackholm. I'm sitting in with Tony today. Remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, would like everyone to stop using the word baby to refer to unborn children in the womb. That's according to a new Guide to Language and Abortion issued in March of 2022. It begins, quote, The language we use when discussing reproductive health has a profound impact on what people hear and learn, end quote. I couldn't agree more, but that might be the only true statement in the entire guide. Here to unpack the guide and the power of language in the abortion debate is Mary Zock, director of the Center for Life and Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Joseph. Well, this is an interesting uh, conversation. Uh, It might seem silly, but it's not silly. ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they want to stop from people from using the word baby, or more specifically, they want to stop doctors from using the term baby or unborn child and instead use the terms like embryo or fetus. Why is this important to them? Well, I think that the the key here is they want doctors to stop using this word when the child is not wanted. I don't think that the American College of OBGYNs would ever instruct their OBs and their OB-GYNs who are who are member who are their members to not refer to wanted babies as babies, right? It's it's only when the child is not wanted that we that that they want the rest of us and they want doctors specifically to dehumanize that child. And we see this dehumanizing language throughout their entire quote unquote guide. Uh, to how to speak about abortion. You make a good point there, because I think most of this is really about dehumanizing a child before you kill it. Because if something, if we dehumanize it, we've seen this 
so many tragic examples of othering people that we don't want to value. And before we end up killing them, we just make the argument for why they're not actually human and why it's not wrong to eliminate them. But I think it's important uh, for those of us on the pro-life side of this and those of us who are watching this debate, that terms like embryo and fetus, those are actually a thing in the same way that terms like infant and toddler are. It's not saying you're not a human. It's just a different age or a different size human. So using these terms are an attempt to dehumanize people. But in reality, our size doesn't determine our humanity, does it? Absolutely not. And and the word fetus, actually, it's it's a Latin word at it, and, and it and it means offspring or little one. Um, so it's really if if we went to the Latin root of the word, um, we would see that it's it's an endearing term. It's just that we don't see it that way in, in our modern culture. But that's not the only troubling part of this guide. You know, the the guide, the first thing that it says is late term abortion does not happen. We know that in 21 states in the United States, abortion is legal up until the moment of birth. And so it might make ACOG feel better to say late-term abortion does not happen, but the laws in America allow abortion right up till the moment of birth. And ACOG's own website says that they oppose restrictions on partial birth abortion, which, and, and it's incredibly gruesome, but partial birth abortion is where a child is aborted as that child is being born, where, where that child is killed as the child is being born. So ACOG's, you know, their, their guidance to no longer use the word, words late-term abortion because those don't happen, that's just not based in reality. Relevant to that point, one of the other terms that has fallen out of favor and they're telling people not to use is dismemberment for reasons that might be obvious, because when you say dismemberment, it describes what's happening in a late term abortion, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I used to teach high school English. And one of the things that, that students would do when they didn't want to plagiarize on a paper is they would go into Microsoft Word, they would right click and hit that helpful synonyms tool. Well, and it seems like that's what ACOG did because they, they used the word disarticulation instead, which, which most people at first blush don't know what it means. But if you go into Microsoft Word, type in dismember, hit right click and hit synonyms, disarticulate comes up. They're using the same words, just just using a synonym that is not as widely known and doesn't evoke as much of a response. And, and it's an effort to, to detract from the truth of what dismemberment abortion actually does. What you described there, I believe, is the theme of this entire guide is to take words that have a common understanding and people recognize and uh replace them with vague words that people don't understand what is actually happening. And it's an entire exercise in gaslighting and obfuscation and trying to make people unaware of what it is that we're actually talking about with abortion. Other terms that they don't want to have used, fetal heartbeat. They, they, the word heartbeat has fallen out of favor. And instead, we want to use fetal cardiac activity instead, um, basically saying the same thing, but they're hoping a few people might not understand what that means. But Mary, 
these recommendations sound more to me like talking points memos or a messaging brief that you would give to a candidate as they're going to talk about issues to frame these issues in a way that are favorable to their position. Are we really talking about science here or are the scientists really engaged in politics? Scientists are absolutely engaged in politics. And, and what you mentioned with the fetal cardiac activity instead of heartbeat, the ACOG's guide says that a heartbeat can't actually exist because the, the heart is not fully developed. Well, it doesn't require a fully developed heart for there to actually be a heartbeat. So ACOG has completely abandoned science here um, and, and they've just picked up the pro-abortion ideology in its place, and they're championing that instead of good health care and, and informed health care. Mary, these are the kind of situations that make it hard for many of us to take people seriously when they say follow the science, because I think it's transparent that this language guidance has nothing to do with following the science. It's just an effort by the scientists to manage the political conversation around it. It's concerning, but it's important to know about. And we thank you for bringing us awareness. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. We will continue to track that as the language battles in America continue. But coming up, is a new Christian school in Ohio, the beginning of a national movement of the church taking back education in government. We'll talk about it when we come back here on Washington Watch. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Between kindergarten 
In 12th grade, a child will spend 16,000 hours in formal classroom instruction. That time is not only determining what a child learns, but it's also having a dramatic impact on their worldview, what they believe is important and worth loving. Throughout the country, Christians are beginning the work of reclaiming education from the government, and they are encouraging models developing even now. One state that can serve as a model for other states is Ohio. And here to talk about what's happening in education in Ohio is Aaron Baer, the president of the Center for Christian Virtue. Aaron, welcome to Washington Watch. Joe, always good to catch up with you. Well, it's good to see you. Some exciting news in Columbus. Uh, school is being launched. Tell us about why this is so encouraging. Absolutely, Joe. You know, this is a, an issue we've been looking at for a long time. You know, really across the board, the, the government-run education system is failing kids. Uh, academically, uh, in, in especially in inner cities, you see uh, kids in, in high school who can't read. Uh, but then really what we've seen exposed over the last few years is the, the moral corruption of kids, uh, whether it's critical theory or the LGBT uh, ideology that's permeated every classroom across America. Uh, and and the, the question was, what are we going to do to get serious about this problem? Uh, and what we've built out in Ohio, along with a robust uh, sort of school choice system uh, through vouchers and eventually our backpack bill, uh, we built out a model for churches to get in the game of educating kids uh, full-time by starting schools in their existing Sunday school classroom space. Uh, and we just actually had our first pilot uh, program, our first pilot school, uh, Incorporate. Uh, and uh, they'll, yeah, eight churches come together. Uh, and this is a model we're going to see at uh, hundreds of churches over the next few years. I think there's a lot of churches and a lot of Christians who think it would be awesome to have a Christian school available for their kids. And there's a lot of churches who would say, yeah, we'd love to have a Christian school here, but it's cost prohibitive. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't we don't have the money to hire a bunch of teachers and faculty. What is it that has made it possible for this to happen in Ohio? Yeah, you know, I think first and foremost in Ohio, what we have going for us is we do have a robust uh, voucher program here. We have something called Ed Choice. Now, uh, what we're trying to do at CCV is expand it and make it eligible, make every kid in the state eligible for it uh, via our backpack bill. Uh, but what we, as we have right now, uh, kids already are eligible, uh, kids in failing school districts, so most inner city schools are failing, uh, or, or low income kids are eligible for, uh, a state sponsored voucher. Um, that can be used in a private Christian education. Uh, so that's what makes this first pilot school really, uh, attainable, uh, for this church to launch. And what we're doing at CCV is we bring in our education expertise, our legal expertise, uh, to provide all that regulatory work for the, these churches to be get up, be able to get up and going. Um, now the, the, the key of this though, Joe, really is the will of the church is the church to recognize uh, that we have a real discipleship crisis uh, in our country today. Uh, what is forming our children? That, that's the question we need to be asking. And if churches are honest with ourselves uh, today, we, we have to be, be honest that uh, really it's the culture, it's the public education system that's forming our kids way more than the churches. Uh, and once you, once you sort of acknowledge that, that makes all of these other questions just logistical questions that we can work through. I understand that there are about eight churches who have come together for this specific school. What is it that pushed them over the line to say, we've got to get involved in education again? Yeah, really, when you saw these churches come together, it was COVID that brought them together, where they saw the needs in their communities and the public education system that was flooded with millions of dollars 
refusing to open their doors to ha- to educate kids. Uh, and they recognize uh, in particular uh, that even the kids going through the system, and this is a, where, where this church uh, is, where this school is, is one of the highest crime, highest uh, poverty areas uh, in the city, in the country, really. Uh, and uh, And they saw that Kids were, were graduating, uh, from high school who couldn't read, whose, whose futures were being taken away from them. And I think one of the things that really inspired me about this group of, uh, churches that came together is they were actually coming back to one of the, the, the first missions of the church, which was you look at a state like Ohio where the, the pastors that founded our, our state, uh, that came out with the Northwest Territory, it was, they wanted to start a state where people valued literacy to read so they could read God's work. Uh, these churches saw that the, the kids in their middle schools and high school Bible studies couldn't read, which means they couldn't read the Bible. Uh, and they felt convicted to say, we've got to do something about it to help these kids. And to that point, do these churches then see this as a distraction from their primary goal of evangelism and discipling and spreading the gospel? Or is this part of that? I, I, Joe, that's the the best part about all of this, is that this is the church getting on mission, really. This is the church going into discipleship uh, and and recognizing, hey, we're actually going to be helping our people, growing our church, achieving the mission uh, that that Christ gave us through our churches uh, by by discipling and raising up that next generation. You know, they're going to have all of these families coming to their church five days a week now that they can come around and love and bless. This is what's important about our model when we're talking to prospective churches, and we have 16 churches that have expressed interest to open uh, in the fall of 23, uh, what, what's important about this is we say we don't want to. We're not asking you to let a school be here. We're asking you to to own the school. To say this is our mission. We're you know we we might be still be doing missions overseas, but we're going to bless our local community and pour into the families that are here uh, through this school. Aaron, it's super encouraging. We're going to talk a lot more about this. This is how we rebuild the foundation. This is how we rebuild the walls that have been torn down. The church takes back that leadership, discipleship, education responsibility that we've outsourced to Caesar for too long. We appreciate your leadership there in Ohio, and we pray that it spreads across the land quickly. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thank you, Joe. And we will follow that story because it is critical. But coming up next, COVID is off the headlines, but is it over? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. 
Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. He will be back in the chair tomorrow. COVID policy seems to be as inconsistent as ever. The vaccine mandates continue to be a political football. Some airlines are allowing unvaccinated employees to return to work. But the city of Chicago continues to push a mandate for police officers and other first responders. In addition, the New York City mayor prohibited an unvaccinated NBA player for the home team Brooklyn Nets from playing games in New York City, even as unvaccinated players for visiting teams are allowed to suit up and play. Meanwhile, The CDC recently published a paper touting the effectiveness of mRNA vaccines, despite legitimate concerns that nearly 8% of vaccine recipients experience adverse events. Here to unpack all of it is Dr. Andrew Bostom, academic clinical trialist, epidemiologist, and research physician. Dr. Bostom, welcome back to the program. Hi, Joseph. Now, tell us, from your perspective, Ukraine seems to have knocked a lot of COVID off the headlines, but where do we stand now with COVID? Uh, well, we're in good good position in the United States. Um, you know, the Omicron wave, even with the sub-variant, the, 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 the two-variant, um, is still is still waning. Um, it was it was a much milder wave in many respects than than the previous waves uh, in in terms of uh, serious morbidity and, and mortality, um, and it's probably conferring a lot of natural immunity to the to the population. Um, the the Kyrie Irving situation 
with the with with the Nets. I, I grew up in New York. Is 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 particularly ironic, Joseph, because because he was in attendance. <laughs> he was he bought a courtside seat. Uh, to, to, I think basically to show how absurd the policy was. Uh, and and as you pointed out, you know, unvaccinated players, uh, as long as they weren't a net, could could play uh, in, in the Barkley Arena. Uh, and and afterwards, uh, K- Kevin Durant was participated in a presser where he just was shaking his head at how absurd the policy had become. So it's good when when an athlete of Kevin Durant's stature, or Kyrie, Kyrie Irving's stature, start start to point out or make gestures that show how absurd these policies are. That particular case does seem to illustrate very well the absurdity of this. And it's very difficult to make the case that there is a public health justification for saying, oh, well, you play for the Celtics, so you can play, but you play for the Nets, so you can't play. There's clearly something else going on there. We are still seeing something of a patchwork of COVID policy across jurisdictions. For the most part, across the country, schools are now meeting mask free do you believe that the change in policy is a a reflection of the fact that the numbers really have changed in terms of of positive cases in terms of the death rate or is this something where the politicians are now kind of catching up with the public fatigue over covid i I think it's mostly the latter uh and i i also think that um the, the the public has seen through Really, a lot of the pseudoscience that that was behind these regulations, uh, you know, it's 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 slowly coming even to public awareness uh, that um, the the non pharmaceutical interventions, uh, whether they were imposed, uh, you know, rigorously or not, had very little impact on the um, the epidemic curve, uh, had very little impact on on morbidity and mortality. Um, and came at a great cost, both uh, uh, sociologically and, and economically. Uh, and, and this is particularly apparent now to parents who have been advocating for their children not not to wear masks, not not to, not to have healthy children um, be subjected to vaccine mandates. Uh, so um, I, I think that's been the driving force behind this. Um, but yet, you know, there's a lot of recalcitrant forces uh, that are that are spouting the same things that have been uh, disproven. And then also, I, I did want to mention, Joseph, you 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 brought up the uh, the at least I was sent the Lancet paper, which which was a part of the CDC analysis of, of, of vaccine safety, uh, CDC FDA analysis, um, and it, it it's it's only covered six months worth of of follow up for the COVID nineteen vaccines. And in particular, the, the the most commonly used in this country, the mRNA vaccines. Um, and I, I just did a quick tabulation uh, just to give you uh, and your and your audience a, a perspective. So remember, it's six months of follow up for the for the mRNA vaccines. Well, I compared that in the same system. We have this passive system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. Which, by the way, we now got documents from from Pfizer that were for, part of discovery. Uh, in a trial, and, and Pfizer acknowledged in these documents um, that were hidden that, that they relied on the VAERS system uh, so that they wouldn't have to do the the, the, the follow-up uh, uh, analyses for adverse events because they 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 claimed in these documents at least w- while putting it down in public, but they claimed privately that it was quote unquote robust. So there you have it from from the large vaccine manufacturer. But at any rate, if you look at at six months follow-up. Uh, in terms of deaths that have been associated with the mRNA vaccines 
There were 4,496. In 20 years of flu follow-up in the same system, uh, from 2000 through 2019, there were 688. So 688 in 20 years versus 4,496 um, in, in just six months, uh, as reported in that Lancet paper. So about seven times the rate. Um, uh, for stroke, it was 1,937 events associated with the mRNA vaccines in six months um, versus 370. So five times the rate 20, uh, of 20 years worth of flu follow-up. Uh, and same thing for myocardial infarctions, so heart attacks, um, and this, this syndrome of inflammation of the heart muscle and its covering myopericarditis. For myocardial infarctions, um, 1,118 in just six months associated with the mRNA vaccines, 72 associated with the flu vaccines. And for myopericarditis, 1,307, again, six months of follow-up for the mRNA vaccines, 111 associated with uh, 20 years worth of flu vaccines, so 13 times the rate. So I, I think it's useful to have, um, to have these metrics out there as well. Dr. Boston, that's great context for the next question I have for you, because many jurisdictions are still enforcing vaccine mandates, including in Chicago, where Mayor Lightfoot there is continuing the threat of, of uh, firing first responders, including police officers, if they don't get vaccinated. Here's what she had to say about that. My goal always is to educate people into compliance, and my hope is that the vast majority of officers, majority of which are uh, vaccinated, will come into compliance and will move on. What's your reaction to this idea that we got to educate people into compliance? Oh, I'm, I'm all for education, but it should include ed education uh, that, that, that uh, doesn't ignore this disproportionate rate of serious adverse events. And then, of course, Joseph, we have the basic question. And by the way, this applies. So I actually think the record shows that COVID-19 vaccines are, are significantly um, more dangerous than, than flu vaccines. And, and, and again, they're roughly equivalent in terms of the wide usage. And, and now we're seeing with COVID vaccines the need for, for, for boosters and flu vaccines are get administered every year. Um, but, but both suffer from a lack of ability to prevent transmission. And that's why neither one of them should be mandated. In other words, if, if, if a physician and a patient make a conscious choice that, that the individual is, is perceived to be at increased risk for serious consequences from either flu or COVID, that is a personal protection choice to get vaccinated. And that's the way it should be relegated for both of these vaccines, because it's, it's absurd to mandate a vaccine that, that uh, has never been shown to, to decrease uh, transmission. And, 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 and that is true now. We have 40 years of evidence for flu vaccines, and we have a little bit over a year of evidence now for COVID vaccines that neither, uh, that neither um, uh, reduced community transmission. And that would be the only you know, ethical and scientific rationale uh, for, for mandating them. Beyond that, it's a, it's a personal choice in terms of, of protection. Dr. Bossom, of course, one of the things that we've needed in order to get an understanding of the impact of these vaccines is time. And uh, okay. time is now passing, and we are learning some things. And we hope and pray, of course, as we gain that knowledge through time, that our policy in the future will be informed by that. But, Dr. Boston, we appreciate your time very much and informing all of us about the latest developments. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you. Bye-bye. Next, as we near a Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case, many state legislators 
are preparing for a post-Roe landscape, passing bills to further restrict abortion. The latest of these actions took place in Idaho, where a bill was passed yesterday aimed at restricting abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. This bill allows family members to sue a doctor who performs the abortion for a minimum of $20,000 in damage within four years of the procedure. If it sounds familiar, it's similar to the bill passed in Texas. Joining me now to discuss this is Blaine Kanzadi, president of the Idaho Family Policy Center. Blaine, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's good to see you. Uh, Tell us, Idaho actually already had a heartbeat bill before. Why is this new legislation necessary? Yeah, in 2021, the state legislature passed a heartbeat law. Unfortunately, because of ongoing court battles over heartbeat laws in other states and other courts, our state legislature decided to put a trigger mechanism into that law, which meant that it would not be enforceable until another state heartbeat law was upheld in another court. Um, So we got really excited when we saw the Texas heartbeat law, which went into effect last year, um, was allowed to go into effect by the U.S. Supreme Court. And what we decided to do is add a private enforcement mechanism like Texas into our existing heartbeat law that would make that heartbeat law effective immediately um, and would start saving babies right away. So you expect that this will go into effect sooner than the bill you passed in 2021? All all this bill does is make a simple change to that law from last year, adding in this private enforcement mechanism that allows family members of unlawfully aborted babies to sue the abortionist who committed the crime. We add in that component, and what that does is it makes the law from last year enforceable 30 days after the governor signs it. So the state legislature passed the law um, yesterday. Our state house passed it. Our state senate had passed it a couple weeks before, and it now moves to the governor's desk. He has the opportunity to sign it. And if it goes into effect, we're expecting it to save about a thousand babies a year. Blaine, do you think this would have happened if Texas had not done what they did? We're so grateful that Texas paved the way on this. Uh, They created a viable pathway for states to follow. Um, And obviously, the Supreme Court allowed their law to go into effect. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court had two opportunities to uh, block the Texas law from going into effect. They chose not to. And, And because of that, Other states like Idaho now have the opportunity to follow that winning strategy and make sure that babies can be saved uh, right away. I think what we're seeing here in the relationship between Idaho and Texas on this particular issue is a great illustration of how states really are the laboratories of democracy. And when something works in one state, other states can see that as a model and apply it for themselves. Conversely, we see how California has led in the wrong direction on so many issues and so many blue states have followed their their example. It's great to see uh, red states doing the same when it comes to protecting life. But we are seeing also, Blaine, across the country, we're seeing blue states, pro-abortion states move in the wrong direction. And this week also we've seen Colorado put into state statute the fundamental right to abortion, which would be in their state law, even if Roe versus Wade was overturned. Do you foresee a landscape in the near future where states have dramatically different positions when it comes to abortion? And there are some places where it's it's available up until nine bir- nine months of pregnancy and the taxpayers will pay for it and other states where it's not available ever. 
Yeah. So a few months ago, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Dobbs case, which I'm sure all your viewers are familiar with. And that case has the potential to get rid of the Roe and the Casey precedents that uh, prohibits states from banning abortion before viability. So if the court does overturn Roe v. Wade, the issue of abortion will be sent back to the courts or sorry, sent back to the states. And at that point, you're going to see, uh, you know, varying landscape of different state laws. Uh, red states are going to ban abortion from conception. Blue states are going to allow abortion up through birth. And we're going to have a long fight ahead for the pro-life community, even when Roe is overturned, as we seek to enact state laws that protect the dignity and the value and the sanctity of human life. As we see states move these directions. We just saw, you know, the mask states and the non-mask states. We may see across those same lines, states where kindergartners have to declare their pronouns and states where they don't have to declare their pronouns and places where abortion is completely legal and easy to get and places where it's completely illegal. But Blaine, your leadership in Idaho, so many other state legislators, do you get a sense that on the life issues, as we continue to gain momentum culturally, that legislators are more willing to lead on this issue? I think so. You know, for so long, the states have been scared of the courts, and now it seems like the courts are beginning to turn, that tide's turning up the courts when it comes to allowing states to pass these pro-life laws. And so state legislators are feeling even more emboldened. Um, and, of course, we've seen significant cultural shift in the pro-life direction over the last couple decades, especially among younger people who um, are markedly more pro-life than their preceding generations, um, just, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So we're making a lot of progress and state legislators are becoming more emboldened to pass laws that save babies and ensure equal protection of the law for pre-born children. Blaine Kanzadi, we are encouraged by what's happening in Idaho and we're thankful for your leadership and making it happen there. God bless you. Thank you. And friends, that is all the time we have for today. I hope this little illustration helps you see how important the little things are. Little actions in Texas end up making a big difference, even up in Idaho as well. All of us doing our part makes a big, big difference. That's the show we have for today. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Until then, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.